Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you for what you have done. It is past our reckoning what you have done for us. No mind has seen, uh, imagined or eye has seen or ear has heard all that you've prepared for those who love you. And we know that. And Father, I pray that you would help us to feel it in our bones so that when the afflictions come, we will know it's true. So Father, we pray that you would help us by opening up our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. On June 8, 1941, C.S. Lewis stepped into the pulpit of the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford to deliver what would become one of the most celebrated sermons of the 20th century. It's titled, The Weight of Glory. And I know many of you are familiar with it. This sermon is, is one of his best known sermons. Perhaps the, the most famous passage actually comes at the very beginning where Lewis says this. I'm just gonna to read to you. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end within itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased." End quote. Lewis's point is simply this. We are often undone by our desires. What we desire defines who we are. And our problem for most of us is not that we desire too much for ourselves, but too little. Instead of aspiring to the glory of God in the face of Christ, we mire ourselves in a morose array of idols. This is why a husband decides to forsake his marriage covenant to take up with another woman. It's why a person would give their whole life to their work and neglect their family. It's why a student would cheat on a test rather than study. It's why somebody would choose to believe in a lie rather than to believe the truth. It's why someone would let their eyes marinate in pornography. For all of these, 
The fundamental problem is that desire has fixed on some temporal and sometimes sinful end to the neglect of an eternal end. It's when desire fixate on some perceived good in this age without any thought of how one might inherit an age to come. So what happens is we find ourselves desiring not too much but too little and folks will flit about with sinful sex, self-advancement, quests for money, influence the praise of men and they hew for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water and they give their whole lives away for that which will in the end slip through their fingers. And the fundamental problem is not that their desires are too great, but too little. We are far too easily pleased, perfectly content to play around with mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine what it's like to have a holiday at the sea. Now, how many of you, if you were honest, would detect that this root of waywardness is in your own heart? Now there is something perhaps, or some person, some achievement that you desperately desire in this age without any thought of what is to be gained in the age to come. If you are content to desire the things that are seen, you will never desire the things that are unseen. And if you cannot desire the things that are unseen, your faith won't survive when the things that are seen fail you. And the things that are seen are going to fail you. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18. In this chapter, Paul has been describing his own experience as an apostle. And it is nothing if not a laundry list of the ways that the seen things in this life have failed him. His was not a life of creature comforts or of wealth. You all know this. His was a life of persecution for the sake of Christ. In fact, he says in verse 8, I'm afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in my body the death of Jesus. Paul's commission from Christ was no walk in the park. It was brutal. Nevertheless, Paul says that his weak vessel will not always remain weak because Christ, he says in verse 14, is going to raise him up in glory. And so now we come to the final three verses of the chapter and Paul is outlining three facets of what he calls an eternal weight of glory that he is looking forward to. And so we're going to look at this in three, from three angles. We're going to look at the inward glory, the future glory, and the unseen glory. So the inward glory in verse 16, the future glory in verse 17, and the unseen glory in verse 18. So first of all, the inward glory. Everybody put your eyes on verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, one of the features of this letter 
is that Paul uses the first person plural continuously to refer to himself. So when you read there, when he says us and we, he means I and me. So when he says we do not lose heart, what he means is I do not lose heart. And by lose heart, he means to lose motivation in continuing a desirable pattern or conduct of activity. So to lose enthusiasm or to, or to be discouraged about something. It, it's the same expression that he uses in verse one. So he's beginning and ending this chapter by saying, I don't lose heart. So the chapter's bookended by this. He's not going to be discouraged in the work that God has given him to do. Hell or high water, he's going to carry out his ministry no matter what opposition he faces. How is he able to do that? Well, notice what he says there in verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So what does Paul mean by outer self and inner self? Well, let's first of all clear away what he does not mean by this. He does not mean that your inner self is the real you and your outer self is the temporary physical part of you that's ultimately disposable. That's not what Paul means. Paul believes that we are whole people, body, soul, spirit. All of that, all of it is the real you. All of it is what God intends to redeem at the end of the age, which means all of you is going to be saved. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's not trying to dismiss the physical part of us as unimportant while exalting the inner part of us as all important. So what's he doing here? All he's doing is describing what his own life is like in this age. And in this description, you are gonna find out what your life is like in this age. What is it like? In this age, he's saying that his life is one long continuous trial for his body, his outer self. But those bodily trials do not erase the fact that his inner self is being renewed by the Holy Spirit. Now it's very important that we understand how his outer self was wasting away. He's not talking about merely getting old. The word means he's being destroyed. He's talking about dying. He's talking about getting beaten, whipped, stoned, starved, and worse for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about what he describes in chapter 11 and verse 23, when he says that he is beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So when Paul says his outer self is wasting away, think about how that grinding reality of his ministry 
was taking a toll on him. Try, try to imagine what this was like for Paul. When was the last time that you tried to share your faith with someone and they got so mad that they began beating you in your face with their fists as hard as they can? When is the last time you proclaimed the word of God and your listeners bound your arms and your legs and horsewhipped you until the flesh was hanging off of your back, lacerated, bleeding? When was the last time you stood to read the scripture and an angry mob surrounded you, sneering and crashing stones down onto your skull in order to shut you up by killing you? Think about all of that. When you read Paul say that his outer self is being destroyed, that's what he's talking about. And yet, he says that he does not lose heart or get discouraged from the ministry that's causing him all of this pain. You should be astonished at this and you should be asking, how can this be? He says, although my outer self is being destroyed, my inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul says that even though his outward renewal hasn't yet begun, he's still being pummeled as he's writing this, his inner transformation by the Holy Spirit has begun. Instead of losing his heart and his courage, he gets up every day, he stares death in the face with his strength renewed and his spirit resolved to run the race with vigor for one more day. That's what Paul's doing. Paul is able to do this because of a renewal of the Holy Spirit that's going on inside of him. The same Holy Spirit that's inside of both me and you. When Paul speaks of this renewal elsewhere, he says that it's a renewal of the mind in Romans 12 too. It comes by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit in Titus 3.5. He speaks of being renewed to a true knowledge, to the image of the one who created us in Colossians 3.10. These instances of renewal are all inward and wrought by the Holy Spirit of God. So if you want to boil down what Paul's saying. He's saying this. Paul's saying that the most important thing about me is not the pummeling of my body that any and everyone can see with their eyes. The most important thing about me is that I have the Spirit of Christ in me, changing me, remaking me, taking my heart of stone, making it into a heart of flesh, giving me a taste for eternal things, setting my desires on good things and transforming me into the image of Christ. That's the most important thing about me. And no matter what they throw at me, they can't stop my renewal because they can't stop God. He's the one doing the work. It's God who works in me to act and to will according to his good pleasure. God is taking my dead and dull heart and making it alive to the things of God. He is forming in me something so beautiful and so glorious that if you could see it, you would have to cover your eyes. That is the most important thing about me. Not all this pummeling of my flesh that you see. And I wanna to say to you that this is the most important thing about you, brothers and sisters. The most important struggle of your life is to see and to feel 
and to know that this is true because the devil and your flesh are trying to derail you and to shipwreck your faith by getting you to fixate on your pain and your griefs rather than on his pleasure to form Christ in you. Trying to get you to look only at the things that are seen rather than at the things that are unseen. There's probably not anybody in this room facing the same kind of physical trials that that Paul was experiencing. I know there's plenty of people in this room who know what it feels like to be afflicted in your outer self. About 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. I thought, I'm too young for this. Um, But I I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. I wasn't happy about it. Uh, I was hoping somehow that we could manage this without having to get on all of the medications that are required to treat it. But my doctor told me if I didn't get on the medication, I would be on disability. And he was right about that. Because when I was untreated, the disease washed over me like a flood. Every joint in fingers, hands, wrists, elbows, toes, shoulders, knees, ankles, feet, everything from top to bottom, joints were exploding with grinding pain. There were whole days when all I could do is just sit in my chair. You can ask my wife. I just sit in the living room in the chair. If I try to get in the car and go somewhere, I could barely reach behind me to put the seatbelt on. Uh, I like to lift weights. I remember trying to lift weights at the time and it was like my bones were exploding. I just couldn't do it. You know, we live in a time um, where there are treatments for RA, very grateful for that. So ever since then, I've been on these, these drugs and guess what the drugs do? They take, make you not sick in one way and they make you sick in another way. Um, uh, they suppress your immune system. So I've been on these drugs that suppress my immune system and to keep my immune system from attacking my own joints. It's been, so, so it's kept my disease under control, but every two weeks I'm giving myself an injection and I'm taking a drug that's um, a, a low dose uh, form of treatment f- for cancer. And this is why our family was super careful during COVID because I have a suppressed immune system. Nothing has made me more aware of the fact that my outer self is wasting away than RA. And that's just one thing. I turned 50 this year and the older, or last year, and the older I get, the more the issues just seem to pile up. Now I say that knowing that some of you here have faced and are facing far more difficult bodily conditions than I've faced. For some of you, your struggles are every bit as painful or difficult, if not more so. And some of your struggles may be even life-threatening, but no matter where your affliction weighs on the pain-threat scale, the message that God wants us to see and hear clearly is this, although my outer self is being destroyed, my inner self is being renewed day by day. No matter what our pain or our disease or our affliction or our griefs may be, nothing can stop God's purpose to form Christ in us. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. 
He's going to walk with you all the way through and there is no power of hell and no scheme of man that can ever pluck you from his hand. Even if you die, yet, yet shall you live. This is what Paul is describing when he talks about the inward glory. This is happening right now. But he also talks about a future glory. Look at verse 17. For this momentary, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's using two parallel expressions that are perhaps best understood if we render them really literally. The two expressions are this. It's literally momentary lightness of affliction, and then it's parallel to eternal weight of glory. So mark that, eternal, uh, momentary lightness of affliction, eternal weight of glory. He's clearly con contrasting affliction, current affliction, the seen affliction with the coming glory, the unseen glory. Affliction refers to Paul's present bodily pain. Glory refers to Paul's glorification, his resurrection from the dead. Affliction is what's going to kill his body. Glory is what's going to make his body come to life again. The affliction is momentary. The glory is eternal. The affliction is light. The glory is heavy. So here's Paul's calculus. If you put present bodily pain, griefs, afflictions on one side of the scale, and you put future bodily glory on the other side of the scale, the glory side is so heavy that you break the scales on the glory side. It's like putting a blade of grass on one side and all of Mount Everest on the other side. There isn't even a scale big enough to put them in the balance. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of the present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. And we say all that, and yet we know that the sufferings of the present time are still all too real to us. And sometimes this stuff doesn't feel like it's true. We've just begun a new year. I don't know what your last year, 2022, was like, but ours was bookended by grief in the lives of two families that are very dear to us, two families that are also a part of this community here at the seminary in Boyce College, two couples in our lives that have learned the horror of losing a child. One year ago, right here, in, in front of where I'm standing right now, we held a funeral for little Rena Abbott. Some of you know her and her parents. She was nine years old, same age as my youngest daughter and one of my little girl Lucy's best friends. Her parents are dear friends of ours, members of our church, small group. And so we were there witnessing this two-year fight with cancer. 
We wept with her parents and we pled with God and the Lord decided to bring her home. Not before we saw her profess faith in Christ and baptized just a few months before her death, but still for her mom and for her dad, the pain of her last days and the grief since last February has been almost too much to bear. Very heavy, so weighty. That was the beginning of the year, last February, the end of the year, right before Christmas. My best friend of 40 years, who many of you know and love, he was a professor here at Boyce College, very much a beloved member of this community, contacted me with the horrible news that his 17-year-old son had been killed. This is a boy I watched grow up. They were our backyard neighbors. Our children and their children were in each other's houses all the time. And he's calling me to tell me this news. And I can only describe what I heard on the other end of the line as something like the guttural cries of David crying out for Absalom. The weight of the dismay and the grief is heavier than I can begin to describe. So I share that uh, in part because I just want you to remember them and and to pray for them. Their hearts are broken and it is so heavy. Broken dreams, broken hearts, heavy. And yet I heard from both of those fathers, one who stood here in this pulpit and another who stood at a pulpit in a church in town, bear witness to their hope in Christ. Paul says that whatever your affliction is, No matter how heavy your burden is, whether it be the crushing grief of having to bury a child or the writhing dismay of being hated so much that you had to bear the baseless accusations of a sneering mob like Paul endured, no matter how heavy the burden is, it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For those with eyes to see, all of that weight, all of it, is going to be like a blade of grass when weighed against the mountain of mercy that God has prepared for his people. When every hot and creaky joint in these hands and arms are made new, when every dreaded disease is drowned in the abyss, and every tear is wiped away, and when we all see each other again more glorious and glad than we ever have been here on this side of glory, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, when God finally gathers together his children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, we will look back at all the weight of this past year and of every other year like it, and we will say, That was like a blade of grass, light, really, really light. Now I'm anticipating an objection rising up in somebody's heart in this room. Somebody's going to say, oh, that's great, Denny. You should go write greeting cards. You have a great imagination. 
The pain I'm going through is real, heavy. It doesn't feel light right now. And I want to say to you, you're right. Your pains are real. You cry real tears. You have real dismay. You carry real burdens. And some of them are indeed very difficult to lift. Nevertheless, Paul, the Holy Spirit, are trying to tell you that the fight of your life is not to let present pain eclipse coming glory. This word exhorts you not to let your real burdens obscure the real world that God has made and his real plans to give you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You won't be able to see your way through grief and affliction and pain and anxiety. You won't see your way through it if you fail to see by faith the glory on the other side. It's the glory on the other side that will pull you through. It's that promise. And whether it feels like it right now or not, the most important thing about you is not your pain and affliction. It's the eternal weight of glory that God is planning for you. And if you look carefully at the text, you'll notice something crucial that I skipped over. But notice what the, sec the text says. It says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The text says that the affliction produces the glory. How does that work? How does affliction produce glory? Well, it works this way. Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. God wants to take all of your ashes and bring something beautiful out of it. He wants to take all of your affliction, come and be with you in the middle of it through his Holy Spirit and produce in you something more beautiful that never could have been there unless the affliction came first. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is using your suffering to help you not to trust in what you see with your eyes, but to trust in what you cannot see with your eyes. When you suffer that way, through the Holy Spirit, you will grow in endurance and in character and in hope. And you will be a walking glory in this cursed world. Why? Because you know that God is working all these things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So there's an inward glory and there is a future glory that is pulling us through. The affliction, but the last thing is the unseen glory. Everybody look at verse 18. It's like he picks up in mid sentence here. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now notice that verse 18 
begins with a clause that's dependent on verse 17. So verse 18 essentially is telling us how we can realize the, the truth of verse 17. So if you want verse 17 to come true for you, for this affliction to produce an eternal weight of glory, how does that happen? It will come true for you as you are doing verse 18. It will come true for you as you're looking not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. That means that you must not fixate on the affliction if the affliction is to produce glory in you. When you fixate on the affliction, it will produce anxiety in you and worry and despair in you. That's what fixating on the affliction does, fixating on the scene. You have to fixate on the one who is bringing about the glory. You have to do what Paul said in chapter one. Chapter one and verse nine, Paul said, indeed, talking about himself, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that, why did we have this death hanging over us all the time? Why? In order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's God who brings the glory. The affliction is designed by God to kick the props out from under you so that you will no longer be able to trust in whatever temporal things you are trusting in. The affliction is designed to produce glory in you as you look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. Why? Because the seen things are temporary and light. The unseen things are the Mount Everest of mercy and goodness that God has planned for you. Those are the weighty and eternal things. So you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who by the way himself, for the joy set before him, what did he do? When he had affliction in front of him, what did Jesus do? He endured the cross by despising its shame for the joy set before him. He's looking through the affliction to the joy on the other side. He kept his eyes on the unseen prize and it carried him all the way to glory. It will be no different for us. You keep your eyes on the prize and it will carry you to glory too. So I wanna leave you with two simple exhortations for you to prayerfully consider to apply to your life. And they're simple. Don't let your present pains eclipse your coming glory. That glory has already been planted in your heart and the devil and your flesh have no power to steal away the seeds, the seeds that are sown on the good soil. God has planted seeds of glory so deep in your heart that your future renewal has already broken into the present through the Holy Spirit. And you can be a walking glory right now. Haven't you seen those people? Have you seen them before? Have you seen a saint walking through suffering with tears praising the Lord? in a glowing, happy holiness, just marking their days. You ever seen those people? They are glories. 
you fight the good fight of faith and don't allow the griefs and the anxieties of this age to drive you into despair. The most important thing about you is not your fears or your suffering. The most important thing about you is the weight of glory already at work inside of you and its full revelation is very near. Second thing I'll say, you need to love your neighbor by seeing in them the glory that God made them for. It's not just you that God made to be a walking glory, it's your neighbor that God made to be a walking glory. I wanna leave you with this from the end of C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says this, He says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is, the light of the, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves and to see our neighbor in light of the weight of glory that you are producing in all of us. Father, forgive us if we have so strayed that we regard all of this as pie in the sky and as no practical value. Forgive us for that. And I pray that you would summon forth from our hearts a true knowledge of the weight of glory 
that isn't worthy to be compared to any thing that we're going through here. I pray for your servants, some of them who are walking right now through the valley of the shadow of death. I pray that you would meet them in the valley and that they would feel the weight of glory now and believe it and that a radiating happy holiness would be their walk. I pray for young people here whose lives are set out in front of them and they can hardly imagine what this sermon is about. I pray that you would prepare them for life in this world. That you would prepare them for all of the sufferings that you've measured out for them and that none of them would fall to the side, but that the word sown in them would fall on good soil and that it would bear fruit, fruit that will last. So we pray for you to do this because we can't do it within ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.